Hello Life Changes Church, we are in our Move Again series as we look through the book of Exodus and how God took the Israelites out of slavery, through the wilderness and into his promises. So why don't you grab a notebook and pen and enjoy this sermon. Lovely to see you Life Changes, it's wonderful to be together. My name is Gabe Phillips and I'm married to a beautiful lady called Fiona, the one that was on screen and we have two beautiful children and it's a privilege to be a pastor here at this what I think is the best church in the world. Hey, don't you agree? Oh, well, the best church in the world. But there's been a significant week for everyone. Elon Musk bought Twitter. Liverpool keep moving towards the title. It just feels like God is, God is showing favor on us as a people at the moment. Um, all jokes aside, let's pray for the Man United supporters. God bless all of you. God bless all of you. But let's keep moving on with what God wants to do here. But more excitingly for us as a personal level, as a family, the Phillips family, we recently became homeowners. So we are, yeah, we're very excited. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate it. Thank you. But uh, what, what, what has been quite a long journey in the sense of we saw this home that we, we loved, we fell in love with it, we had one chance to look at it, and then the process started to outroll, and, and, and it takes a long process. From, from November last year all the way to the, us moving in on the 1st of March, it was quite a long, arduous process. Thank God for real estate agents. They're just so helpful, and, uh, and it's this incredible journey. But I'd love to invite you all to my home. Uh, so you're all invited. Uh, my wife will love me to do this. So straight afterwards, if you just, no, I'm just joking. We'll have to uh, get a form or something to get to an orderly fashion. But if you did come to my home, I would love to show you the incredible uh, swimming pool that we've got. It's a slightly green at this moment, but, but it's still a swimming pool. Uh, I'd love to show you the, the fish pond we have. We have a fish pond, people. It's, it's even darker green than the swimming pool, but it's a fish pond. I'd love to show you the oversized trampoline. I'd love to show you my color-coordinated bookshelf. It's just a, it puts the Mona Lisa to shame, people. It's just a, boom, a thing of beauty. But the most impressive thing that came with this home, I don't know if you guys have seen this new two-for-one deal. We, with our home, we got a granny flat with a live-in granny, a mother-in-law that came with it. Just incredible. I tell you, it's just amazing. And now listen, if you've been married for a year or two and you're like, oh, still on honeymoon and it's just the two, just the two of us. You're like, mother-in-laws, I don't want them anywhere near me. You can keep your mother-in-law. That's just a punchline to a joke. No, thank you. When you've got two kids, redhead, flaming excitement, exuberance, whatever word you want to put it, age five, age three, you want mother-in-law nearby as close as you can. Praise the Lord for on-site grannies. Can I get an amen from anybody in the house? Thank you, Jesus. But remember, from that November through to the March 1, we bought the home, we started the process, signed the papers. The home was ours, but it was not ours, if you catch my drift. We weren't allowed in yet. They still had to, they were living there until all the, the, the I's had been dotted, the T's had been crossed, and the bank had done what the bank does. Nobody knows. It's a mystery, but just it's incredible. And then we were waiting in this process, but in this process, we, we, our hearts were already there. We were so excited for this home, so much so that our GPS literally would reroute us all the way, almost became ingrained in our routine. Instead of going to our old home, every night we'll drive to the new house that we weren't allowed in, but we would come and we'll drive stalkerish, stalkerishly around slowly, looking, fantasizing what was inside those walls. And we would imagine and tell our kids, our home, I think your room's somewhere there, and, and, and then this and that. And, and we we're just imagining what life would be like. And there was that awkward moment. We were driving slowly past the gate, and the gate opened, and they were coming out, and we, our eyes locked. And it was just like this awkward moment. And they knew who we were, and what are you doing at our house? And we're not too sure. So I said, Fiona, drive, drive. It's like, Gabe, you're driving. Oh, I apologize, let's go. 
And we know at that time, the road groups were going wild. There is a dodgy looking redhead in a white VW. Keep an eye out. You know, I apologize. That was me. That was me. But we, we, we just were loving this home. And then, but we couldn't move in. But then on the 1st of March, the papers were signed. The keys were handed over. And then all of a sudden, the gate opened. And there was no one else waiting there for us because this was my home. This was our home. And we moved on in. The movers came. The furniture went in. We made ourselves at home. And this home became ours. We moved on in. Now, I've got this understanding in my heart that I think too many Christians, too many people who profess the name of Christ are living in that three-month type period, if you catch my drift. They know that the papers are signed. They know that Jesus is their Lord. They know that Jesus is their Savior. They know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. They know in Christ is joy. In Christ is righteousness. In Christ is freedom. In Christ is everything. But it feels like I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not able to enjoy it for myself. I know it's mine theoretically, but it hasn't moved into my heart experientially. And actually, this is a story that's as old as time. Genesis 3, in fact, gives us the first uh, explanation of this, that a people, Adam and Eve, were in the garden experiencing paradise, experiencing God's fullness of His presence and His provision, His goodness, His, his, his kindness, His nearness. They were face-to-face intimacy with God Himself. And then they sinned and violently pulled themselves out of that relationship. And then we're, at the end of Genesis 3, were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and stepped into the wilderness. And God placed at the gate of, of Eden two angels guarding the entrance back in. And almost longingly, you can imagine Adam and Eve longing and looking in. How, how do we find ourselves out and how do we find ourselves to get back in? And what started was the journey of humanity of how do a people who are outside get on the inside of His grace and His goodness. And that's what we want to be navigating today because I know there's a whole bunch of people here who are wanting in on peace. You're wanting in on joy. You're wanting in on freedom. You're wanting in on breakthrough. You're wanting in on more of God. And you say, how do I get in on it? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to take us to Scripture today. Exodus chapter 25. We'll read it and then we'll make sense of it together. Exodus 25 verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair for cloth, tanned ramskins and fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live. Other translations say, so I can dwell, so I can move on in among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Today, I want to invite you. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling down and out. Maybe you're feeling out of your depth. Maybe you're out of hope. Maybe you're out of favor. You may be out of joy. You're running out quickly of, of faith for life ahead. I want to tell you today, maybe you're on the outside looking in and needing something to change. You're saying, I want in on that. I want in on what they have. I want in on what is promised. I want the theoretical to become experiential. Well, then today, I want to tell you, today is the day for you and I to move on in. Today is the day, people. So why don't you turn around, prophesy, and speak it to people around you. I want you to find five people. High five them, fist pump them, tap them on the shoulder, look them in the eye and tell them, I'm moving on in. Let's do it, people. I'm moving on in.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the faith that's in this room. I thank you, Father God, that your word comes and when it collides with our faith, the impossible happens. So I thank you, Father, today that we are not coming for some theory lesson. We are coming for a practical, a demonstration of your power, a demonstration of your goodness, a demonstration of your presence in our life. I thank you, Father God, that we are here today not wanting another manual of AA plus B plus C, and this is what we need to do. We want Emmanuel, the God with us, to come and presence himself with us. So I thank you, Father. Would you move mightily? And would we move and respond to you as you move again? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. The story of Exodus, the narrative that we've been preaching through in the series, Move Again. The book of Exodus starts off 430 years of generational slavery. A people enslaved and not knowing how they're ever going to get free. Losing rapidly their identity. But in chapters 1 to 4, we hear the promise of God echoed out that He's a God who has seen, a God who has heard, and a God who has remembered His covenant. He's a God who says, I, I forget your sins, but I do not forget my promises. He's a God who promises deliverance for his people. There is freedom, he says, and I'm coming for you. He's not just a God who just promises it and cannot act on it. Because in chapters 5 through 11, we also see the power of God intermingling with the promise of God. As we see in Exodus chapter 5 through 11, a God who one by one systematically dismantles the lesser gods of Egypt to show that I am the one true God and I am the one who's come to set you free. Chapters 12, we see the Passover as a lamb is sacrificed, one lamb for one family and for freedom of, for their freedom to be exposed and the people to be set free based on sacrifice. Chapter 14, we see the passing through. As they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, as they open up miraculously and a whole nation move out of Egypt and into their freedom and the waters close behind them upon their enemy, devouring, dis uh, destroying completely the enemy that once held them. Then chapters 15 to 18, we see the provision of God outworked. To a groaning, grumbling, uh, ungrateful people, we see God provide in miraculous ways, saying it's not about you, it's about me. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the one who provides. I am the one who brings water from a rock. I am the one who brings manna and quail. Even if you don't know what it is, I'm the one who sustains you in your wilderness. Then in chapter 19, 20, we get to the transition piece, the Mount Sinai. And it's almost this moment where God leads his people up a little bit higher, away out of their slavery and says, I want you to look beyond because I have more for you. I'm not just setting you free to be free slaves. I'm telling you that you have got a new identity. I want to establish who you are. And he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, not to restrict them, but to show them how to live as free people. You're no longer defined by your chains. You're now defined by who I say you are. And this is how you should live so you can live as sons and daughters of God. And he frees them with a purpose. And then we get to chapters 25 to 40. And it's this, these awkward chapters. If you've got there before, it's hard work, if I'm being honest. It's the narrative moves at a rapid pace up to this part, and then you get to this part. And it feels like you grind to a halt, and you almost want to go, one, two, skip a few, 99, Psalm 23. <laughs> Yay, the Lord is my shepherd. I like that one. Because... It's just Exodus 25 to 40 is architecture and design and measurements and, and the building of a thing called the tabernacle. And it's just a whole lot of heavy work. It feels like this is for the theologians. This is for other people. I'm on the outside looking in and I don't know what's going on there. So let's just leave that one out. But I want to say, no, no, let's put that one back on in and let's move on into it together. Are you okay to move on in with me? Say, so we're moving on in. Beautiful. Well done, guys. And this is the incredible reality we realize these are significant because actually God spoke to Moses and said, speak to, gave us a clue of what he was doing early on. He said, speak to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Freedom. Why? So that they may worship me in the wilderness. 
This is so huge. They says actually the goal is ultimately not just your freedom. That's part of it. But you're not freedom for freedom's sake. You say, I want to set you free for a purpose. And the purpose actually not, isn't fully rec only recognized in the promised land. Yes, I'm taking you. It's tangible. I want you to move into the promised land. But even in on that journey, I want to tell you that the, the goal of your freedom, the goal of your salvation is me. Worship me. I am he, the one who set you free out of Egypt. And that's our journey as well. Too many Christians come with the expectation, I want to be free. And also, I want to go to heaven. But Jesus says, that's, that's great, but those are just means to ends because I am the purpose. One, one theologian once said that if Jesus isn't in heaven, I don't want to go there. Because actually, Jesus is heaven. Jesus is the fullness of life here on earth and into eternity. He is the fullness expression of it. And we get to move in on that here and now. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. And that's God's aim. So we start to see in chapters 25 that we start to read and embark on through to chapter 40, 15 chapters out of 40 chapters of Exodus, they speak about the tabernacle. Seems like it must be important. So much so that actually 90 chapters out of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, 90 chapters are about the tabernacle, how the people of God are to worship God in the wilderness. It must be significant. This is not some periphery thing. This is not just some a footnote, just something to an asterisk to move on over to the side for somebody else. This is for us, people of God, to move on into. So we understand, what is this tabernacle? And for time's sake, there's a, a, a great design that will appear behind me. This is a, a rendering by our team of what the tabernacle in the most simplistic form would look like for, for us. And we're going to navigate our way through with it. And don't shy back. Don't go, this isn't for me. This is for you. Lean in in this moment. And it's this incredible understanding. This is what God called the people to build. And it was this blazing white tent. The outside of it was blazing white all around. These white, massive fences of, of white, white fabric that was in stark contrast to the wilderness surroundings that was just sand from the left to the right, desert. And then black tents that the people would have lived in. There was black tent after black tent. And in the middle of them, in the middle of a groaning, grumbling people is this beautiful tabernacle, this white expression of God's presence with them. And that, on the outset, reminds us that God is telling us that actually, He says, I still do my best work in your wilderness. He's a God who says, I'm not waiting for you to get out the wilderness. I'll meet you in the middle of your wilderness, and I'll still do my work there. And this is the great news for you and I, because right now, maybe you're at home, and you've been losing your mind again and again at your kids. It's confession time. Maybe you're here and you've just blown it again. Maybe you found yourself again this week sitting at the doctor's room waiting for the appointments again. And you're saying, oh, when am I going to get over this? When you, you, you're borrowing money again and not knowing how you'll pay it back again. Maybe you've been drinking one too many glasses of alcohol again to numb the pain. Maybe you have been deleting the internet search history and swearing to God that you'll never do it again. And yet you found yourself at that place again and again and again. And you're saying, I want out. I want to move in. I want to move into your favor, into, into your freedom, into self-control, into this peace, into this joy, into what you've got for me. But it feels like I'm on the outside looking in. I want in on it. God says, here's the good news. First, you have to understand, He is moving on in to your disqualification. He is moving on in to your disease. He is moving on into your despair. He is moving on into your disgusting habits. He is a God that does not hold back at an arm's length. He's a God who says, I always have been, always will be a God who moves on in. He's doing it here in the wilderness and what he sets up is this tent of meeting where the sacrifice would be made and the, ultimately the people of God would be able to, through a representative, encounter the presence of God. So once a year on a day of atonement, all the people would gather outside the tent looking in. 
outside looking in and wondering how do how we get in and here's the process God said this is the process and if we can leave that diagram on the screen this thing the incredible process was that one man a representative for the people called the high priest would go in on the day of atonement and carrying a lamb and what he'll do is he'll sacrifice that lamb it was a, a gory bloody affair he would sacrifice that unblemished perfect lamb he would, that was raised for this moment he would kill it for the sins of the people laying his hands on that lamb imputing the sins of the people for the year past and future onto that lamb the killing that lamb and taking that lamb and placing it on the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. They would burn and burn every single day and they would burn up the, the, the sins of the people as a representation that the sins were being burnt up and being accepted by God as a sacrifice. The next thing that he would do was then he would walk to the next element which was called the basin. And this basin was filled with water and he would then take off his high priestly robes. It was the only time he would take them off in this whole, this whole um, sequence of events. And he would wash himself in that basin. He would wash his hands of the blood. He would wash himself of any dust and dirt as a physical act saying, I'm cleansing myself outwardly to approach you, God. What is significant, as we read that list of all the different articles that the people bought to, to build this tabernacle, gold and linen and cloth and all these elements to build this elaborate structure, we read on later in Exodus that this, this basin was built in the middle as they would wash themselves. They would see a reflection of themselves with a mirror, with broken pieces of mirror that were placed in there. And how they got that mirror for this building, for this, this, this article of furniture, the, the basin, the laver, was through the woman. It says that the woman bought their mirrors and gave them for the use of worship. I think that's remarkable. If you've ever been camping, can you imagine as a woman you've gone camping? These women are camping 40 years and the, the last bit of semblance of your, your, your being able to hold yourself together and keep your femininity is your little mirror that you pop open. I'm just imagining lipstick in the morning. Just, oh, what's, on, what's for dinner, mom? Manna, quail. Like, I just want to keep it together. Put a little bit of lipstick on for the end of the day, you know. But in this moment, they're coming saying, actually, but there's a greater call. We want to worship God. We want to learn what it means to worship Him. So we're going to sacrifice ourselves, what we have of ourselves, and we're going to lay it down so other people can see God. I love that. And I feel the call of God still rising up in my soul saying, actually, I think the call of God still in you and I, will we give up of ourselves so that other people would see God? I think of moms who are packing lunches day in and day out. Moms who are putting kids to bed. It's the routine seems to dominate their lives. And it feels like it's long days of a lot of small things. And you feel like, what am I actually doing? What are you doing is you're sacrificing yourself so other people can see God. Yeah. That's what we're called to do as the people of God. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. But this incredible narrative carries on as we see that the priest would do that thing, he put his robe back on and he would move into the holy place, through that door, through the gateway, and into this room where there was only, the only light was from the candle, where the only lamp, uh, light was from the golden lampstand. This candelabra that was lit and would be, always be burning every day, every night, would never go out, just burning, the only light in the whole of this tabernacle uh, arrangements and set up. Next to it, there was also the table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel saying that actually there will always be a God who provides for the people of God. It's a, rep a reminder that this is a God who provides, and they'll break the bread and, and eat of that to remember that God's provision. There's also an altar of incense where they'll raise, submit prayers to God, and they'll raise up, the smoke would go up, saying this is our prayers going from earth to heaven to you. That, that candle, that golden lampstand, literally was golden. It was made out of gold, pure gold. The Bible tells us 75 pounds of gold. Now, I'm no gold standard uh, exchange rate aficionado, and neither am I a mathematician. So I did something profound. I Googled. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really sharp, people. I Googled. 75 pounds of gold in our 
uh, right now, the official gold rate right now in South Africa would be worth, that candle would be worth 31 million rand for a candle. Load shedding got really expensive right now, guys. 31 million rand for a candle. Honestly, when you realize it now, when you look at that, you go, Elon Musk got a deal with Twitter. That's a steal. 31 million rand for a candle. But why was it so elaborate in a wilderness to have a 31 million rand worth candle full of made of gold? I believe the significance was saying that the light that will never go out, that no, no matter how dark your days get, that God says, I'll always provide a light. I'll expend no expense for my people to be able to see me. In the darkest of days, in the darkest of moments, in the darkest days of your sin, the darkest day of your depression, there's always a light that shines, and it's expensive. It costs him his life. I'll keep shining. I'll keep calling. And this is the journey that the priest, the high priest will go to, and then he'll get to that veil. That veil that the, that the Bible tells us, his measurements were 18 meters high. This was not hokey pokey veil. This was 18 meters high. This was nine meters wide. This was 10 centimeters thick. Uh, scholars say that it took 300 men, 300 men every year in the temple to take down that veil and wash it. 300 men, that's how heavy it was. And then also the writer Josephus said, if you got it was so thick and held together and so well put together, that if you had two fully grown horses that were tied together and they tried to rip it apart, they would be unable to. This was the substance of this thing that was representing the separation between God and man. The way is shut. And what you would get then as they would open that up and move through that, and one man with this man would be so nervous because he only go into that holy place once a year. And once a year, he would then pray and he would ask God, he would, for, he would confess his sins, he would confess, confess the sins of the people, he would confess even at a prayer sins that they themselves couldn't even remember if we have forgotten sins that I have committed. God forgive those as well. They're just making sure because this is such a serious business that actually if a priest would walk in there, if anyone would walk in there with an ounce of unrepentant sin on them, they would drop down dead at the sheer weight of God's presence. So much so that they had tied a rope around the high priest's leg that went all the way out the veil, all the way out the holy place, all the way out the, the front gate so that if the priest dropped dead and there was a bell attached to it, if the priest dropped dead and that bell stopped ringing, they'll know that he, he's now dead. No one's going in after him. It's not like ching, chong, cha, you. Uh, no. We're going to just pull that guy out. And then the next priest, you're like, you're off the bench, buddy. You're on. Oh, stretch my hammies. Here we go. Oh, nerve-wracking moment. And, and, and this is what it, it's like. That's how serious this business was. And the priest would go in there, and as he would go into the most holy place to encounter God, he'll get and he'll come confronted with the last piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant which is a place that had on top of it, it's this beautiful box for the most simplistic terms, I can put it, but on top of it are two angelic beings, a cherubim and a seraphim, two angels guarding the presence of God. Where did we see that before? Genesis chapter three. Two angels standing guarding Eden, saying the way is shut, Gandalf fashion. You shall not pass. The way is shut. And that these angels are symbolizing actually the way to God's holy presence is to encounter him. It's, it's, this is not a small thing. This is God himself you are coming to. And these angels are symbolically holding it there. And there's, the place they're guarding is called the mercy seat on top of it. And it's an empty space, a mercy seat space where they'll shed the blood. And inside the, the ark was three things. A pot of manna from their journey. Aaron's rod that he's been leading the people with. And thirdly, the two tablets that, that contain the Ten Commandments. And they're supposed to be a reminder of who God was, but I think every time as a high priest, I would have seen a reminder of who I am and how I had failed. That I'm a person who despised, I'm part of this group of people who have despised God's provision and not trusted Him. 
I'm a people who've despised God's leadership and I've not trusted Him. I'm a people who've despised God's law and I've not trusted Him and broken it with the golden calf. At every juncture, we have failed Him. So we're coming to that mercy seat saying, God, would you forgive us, please? And they're pouring the blood of the lamb they sacrificed on the outside. Now they're pouring it on the mercy seat. And it said, if God received that sacrifice, it says that the glory of the Lord would fill the tent and they would encounter face to face God. It says just the, the sheer weight of it would be so thick and the people would celebrate and rejoice that they'll be able to encounter God and our sins have been forgiven. This is so profound for you and I. Maybe you're thinking, why is that profound, Gabe? Very helpful, great history lesson, great. Now I don't have to read chapters 25 to 40 myself. No! <laughs> I want to tell you why it's so significant. We want to move on into it. It's because fast forward to John chapter 1. When they start... The writer John starts to tell the gospel narrative. He starts his gospel with these words, in the beginning. Now, you don't have to be a theological scholar to know that those words happen only one other time in Scripture. Page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 starts with, in the beginning. The creation story that everyone is familiar with. John chapter 1. John says now, in the beginning. And if he was writing that to that culture, most listeners would have gone, heresy! What are you doing? Don't you dare touch the creation story. That's the, story that, of, of, that's, that's the story of humanity. You are not God. You don't get to rewrite the story. But he goes, no, no. In the beginning, he says, the word was God and the word was with God. He says, I am now rewriting the way that you experience and encounter God. The way that you've seen God, I want to show you that you've seen him only through a veil dimly. You've only seen him as a dim shadow, but actually I want to move you on into experiencing him. So he's retelling that story. Where we end, John says, that's where God begins. That's where he's beginning his work. And the incredible narrative tells us that he starts to, John starts to, in a sense, rewrite this whole story. Still keep that there up. You can keep it up. He starts to rewrite that whole narrative of this. He starts to walk us from this way all the way out. In a sense, he says this, I'm starting you where you think you would finish your end point. I'm telling you it's God's beginning point. He says, in the beginning, God was the word and God was with the word and God was there. God was there. In the beginning, Jesus was there. And then he says in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you think about that for a moment, it says this, The Word became fleshed and dwelt among us. A better rendition of that says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. It's the same word that's used about the tabernacle that was put in place. The Word, Jesus, put on flesh and stepped and moved in to our wilderness and dwelt with us. The word became flesh, as the message says, and moved into our neighborhood. This is so fundamentally huge. If we understand it, we start to see that Jesus starts to move on in. John chapter 6 carries on this narrative as John literally works us this way back. So the word became flesh, moved on in. Then we see the reality. Jesus says in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. He's literally showing us that I am the bread. I am the provision of the Father. I am the one who satisfies. The next thing he says in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. If you come to me, you'll never walk in darkness. The light that never goes out is Jesus. John 8, verse 59, he literally says in the end of an argument about who is great and what is happening, Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. Doesn't say I was. He says I am, making a claim that I was there before it all, boys. I am the one. Uh, don't you come and tell me the systems to the Father. I am the way to the Father. Yeah. 
Don't tell me about your man-made restrictions. I am the only one who knows that place. And I want to take you there. I want to move you in on there. And it says this so, so hugely. It says at this, when they got so infuriated with them, he said, before Abraham, I am. It says, comma, at this, he left the temple. At this, it almost in a sense, almost like Jesus said, at this, I leave your religious structures and I want to show you a new way in. I'm coming out of this way. I'm showing him the fullness of the wind so you can move on in. Not just theory, but actually experiential knowledge. Reality. And actually, we get to John 14, verse 6, this profound scripture that we know well. We've seen it on the taxis. We've seen it on the coffee cups. We've worn it on the, 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 the T-shirts. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Powerful. But let me tell you, that, that scripture takes on much more deeper symbolism and reality when we realize what Jesus was saying. Because that gate on my left, your right, was colloquially called the way. The way people would be approached, and no one, not many people could go through that. They had to stay on the outside looking in. This door, this veil into the holy place was called the truth because it had to be a place of confession, a place of bringing yourself out and cleansing yourself. And the final one, the only high priest would go in, that last veil was called the life. So when Jesus is saying to a Jewish audience, he in one sense, he's dismantling it all. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's opening the way for us to move on in. So I say today, maybe where we've lost our way, where we've compromised again and again what we've believed, maybe we felt outside of the life of God looking in, it's time for you and I to move on in. Because he moved on into us, we get to move on into him. I tell a story, a year ago uh, today was the wedding of my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. And as they got married, it was like a fairy tale. They literally, it was just one of those weddings, it just was, it felt like there was going to be a lost glass slipper and a midnight thing and a pumpkin to get, it was just was beautiful. It was like, and the only problem was we had a, I have a baby boy who has colic and he likes to scream at inopportune moments. Anyone know? The moment of their first dance, everyone is ooing and ahhing. It is beautiful. The soundtrack starts to swell, and Benji starts to scream. And it feels like now I'm a bomb, di- a bomb disposal unit. I'm just like, give him here, and I'm running. Just honestly, you've never seen a white guy run this fast. Just like, you know, you just, it could be this loud, but as a parent, it feels like it's this loud. So you've got to get out of it because everyone's looking and distracting. And it's just like, so I'm running him out. I'm like, quiet, quiet, quiet. And I run out the door and we run out the side because I don't want to miss this moment, this choreographed first dance. And we're standing out a double glass, soundproof glassing. And I'm looking in at this beautiful scene, people cheersing and people laughing and people dancing. And it's beautiful. It's magical. And I'm outside with Benji going, ah! And with me going, everything in me was, I'm so close. I know that I'm invited here. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. But because of a situation, because of something I've been, I've been walking with here, I cannot get in on it. If I can stretch the metaphor a little bit, can I tell you, that's not just a, an anecdote for out there. That's a real everyday thing for you and I. It happened to me again this week when a situation came to my mind late at night, something that I needed to remedy, people's faces, things, and, and all of a sudden, a heart of anxiety grew up inside of me, and I tossed and turned, I couldn't sleep. And I know theoretically, I know the scriptures. Jesus says, I am the Prince of Peace. I know that. I know that he says, I give you peace that passes all understanding. I can quote it, I can preach it backwards, that he says, the government of peace shall be upon his shoulders. That I'm the God of peace who will soon crush Satan. I know the scriptures, theory, but in that moment, that was, seemed like it was a million miles away, the peace of God, and I was not moving in on it, into it. But God said, no, I want you to move on in. 
I want you to not just know it, I want you to move on into it. And this is where that the rubber hits the road because I want to tell you, God says, there's peace, you want peace, move on into it. You want joy, move on into it. You want self-control, move on into it. You want righteousness, move on into it. This is the move again series that God is reminding his people that I have this for you, will you respond? You see, as we start to bring this to a close, we realize Jesus is walking this way out. He was, and he walks his way out. He walks in the holy place. Jesus, in the story, we tell us, he tells us that, he says, see your king comes to you. He rides into Jerusalem on the donkey as the king coming to the people. The next thing he does is he takes off his kingly robes and he puts on his high priestly robes and he has a meal with his people. He has breaks bread and wine with his people late at night and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he performs a religious ceremony as a high priest would do. Then from there, it says the very next thing he does is he takes off his priestly robes and he starts to wash their feet. He starts to wash their feet and so they take the position of a servant and says, I want to wash you. And he says, no, 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 I must wash you. Unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And the very next thing we do is he moves from being a king to a high priest to a servant. And on the last thing at the altar, we see Jesus, the Bible tells us, he says he willingly laid his life down as a ransom for many as Jesus himself became the sacrifice on the altar. The perfect lamb given his life for us. And scripture, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, Verse 12 says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, suffered outside the city gate, outside the city gate, to make the people holy through His blood. He died outside. So everything that you think is outside of His grace, everything you think is outside of His favor, every habit, every thought, every moment, every situation, that you think that is outside of God's control. He said, no, I died on the outside so that that outside can move on in. This is what He's calling you and I to. And as He died, the Bible tells us that the veil was torn. The veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil that was so thick that no man could ever pull it apart. God tore it from top to bottom. In a moment like that moment to symbolize the way is open. In the the place where he said, I'm just so depressed. I just want the peace of God. I'm so anxious. I'm so fearful. I'm so broken. I'm so so guilt-ridden. I don't know how to get in. You feel every time you try to move on in, it feels like, bam, access denied. Bam, access denied. Bam, access denied. Outside looking in, but God says that the veil is torn. He says, access granted. Move on in. Invitation, move on in. Move on in. And this is the, what the writers in Hebrews says about this whole situation. Hebrews 10 verse 19 to 22 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter. We can boldly move on into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. This is the invitation. Jesus says, I am the tabernacle. Come to me. Come to me, move on into me. And this is the narrative that we preached a couple of weeks ago, John 20. Jesus has died and Mary comes on the Sunday to the tomb. And as she arrives to the tomb, all the theory, she knows the theory, she knows all the teachings, she still believes it. She's seen the miracles, she still believes it. But her theory now is not matching up with the experience because Jesus is no longer there and she feels like I'm all at sea. What is there for me? I'm on the outside looking in again. And as she comes to the tomb, she comes to the tomb, but it's odd because this tomb has a stone that's been rolled away. And as she gets there, the stones rolled away. The Bible tells us there was two angels presiding over the space. Two angels. In Genesis 3, we saw two angels saying, you shall not enter. 
In Exodus 25, we've seen two angels over the, the ark saying, you cannot come close unless you've done all the ceremonies. But here in John 20, we see two angels with a smile on their face saying, he's not here. He's alive. And here's the good news for you and I. That stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. I hate to tell you, but a small, measly geological structure called a rock, a stone, would not hold back the resurrected King of glory who was and is to come. That stone was not moved to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let us in. To see, the way is open. The way is open. Move on in. Move on into peace. Move on into joy. Move on into righteousness. Move on into freedom. Move on into the fullness of life. Move on into Him. While we stand to our feet, life changes church. Today, I tell you, you can't outrun His grace. I tell you, you can't outsin His grace. You can't outdo His grace. Move out of shame. Move out of the shadows. Move out of lukewarm apathy and move on in. Because this is what Jesus is saying to you and I today. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. Here's the great closer for you and I. God says, let my people go so you can worship me in your anxiety. Let my people go so they may worship me in my depression. They may worship me in my addiction. Worship me in my divorce procedures. Worship me in the financial brokenness. Worship me in the relational discord. Let my people go. They may worship me in the darkest moments of my night. The darkest moment of my day. The darkest moment of my soul. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. They can move on in because I have moved on in fully into them. Why don't we lift our hands? We don't want to talk about Jesus as if He's not in the room. We don't want to talk about Him as if He's theory. We want to experience Him. And I thank you, Spirit of the living God, that you are here and you have made the way open. Not by sacrifices of man, but by the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one who died as our sacrifice, the one who presided over it as our high priest, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the tabernacle. I'm the beginning and end. I am it. I am the way to the Father, and I am the fulfillment of the promise. It's me, Jesus. And I thank you right now, as hands are lifted in this room, the faith starts to rise for people who might have been disqualified to say, I'm running on in. I'm moving on in. Why don't you pray that out out of your life? Say, I'm moving on in. Declare it over your life. Declare it over your relationships. I'm moving on in. Declare it over your emotions. I'm moving on in. I'm moving on into freedom. I'm moving on into joy. I'm moving on into peace. Right now, I thank you, Father. The stronghold of depression starts to crumble, not because we have got any greater inner strength, but actually because Christ in me, the hope of glory, who calls me in. I thank you, Father God, you're releasing us. Start to worship. Why don't you start to worship? This is why you were made. This is what you're made for. This is what you've been, your DNA of your heart, to worship Him. You do not need another mediator. There's only one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes the way open. Right now, lift your voice, life change. Lift up your voice. Let's worship Him in this place. Let's declare His goodness right now. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We move on in. As you move on into us, you move on into our disqualification and you redeem it. You move on in and redeem it so we can be worshippers who worship you today. Thank you so much for watching and listening. That was an amazing sermon and we love seeing what God is doing in and through our lives as we move through the book of Exodus. So if you'd like to find out more or give the rest of the series a watch or listen, head over to our website, follow us on social media and get connected. We'll see you soon.